Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Dr. Shepson is one of my favorite human beings our beloved assistant minister here at Grace, professor at Grove City College. I dare say he's right about almost everything. (laughs) Almost. I know he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. But he's dead wrong about only one thing, which isn't such a bad track record, but it's a very important one thing, namely his taste in music. Um, He argues unashamedly and without reservation that the 1990s is superior to the tacky creativity of the 1980s. He is wrong, uh, but he has yet to understand how wrong he is. But I would like to prove in his presence the enduring validity, nay, the eternal quality of the music of the 1980s. So I need you to engage in a uh, dialogue-like experience with me. I'm going to uh, quote various songs Uh, the beginnings of uh, certain verses or phrases, and you must say the rest of them. So this is the experiment, and you need to back me up here so I can prove my rightness and his error. (laughs) Cyndi Lauper, 1984. If you're lost and you look, then you will find me. Time after time. Journey, 1981. (laughs) Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Bonnie Tyler, 1983. Once upon a time I was falling in love. Now I'm only falling apart. Nothing I can do. I'm just telling you, right? The validity and enduring quality of these lyrics and tunes are beyond reproach. Now, I think not only should we perhaps organize a church karaoke party and make Dawn be the DJ, um, but my basic point is simply this, that there are some songs that for whatever reason, for whatever reason, maybe the music, maybe the lyrical quality, they get stuck inside our hearts and they just won't leave. You have your own life soundtrack and I have mine. And now you know three of the hits within my own uh, personal soundtrack. But friends, uh, the crowds on Palm Sunday lived with soundtracks in their lives too. They had songs that they sung. They had things that they chanted. They had poetry that would not leave their brains or their hearts. And this is why, this is why, on Palm Sunday, at the triumphal entry, they could all, on cue, start singing together, chanting together, speaking together, poetry that lay at the very center of their being, namely one of the most famous psalms in the entire Old Testament, Psalm 118. Uh, this, was, um, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It was known in Jesus' day as a messianic psalm, a song that heralded the restorative day of the Lord and hailing the singular individual 
that the single king who would bring the day of the Lord about. And so when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, everybody knew that this was a key moment within history that could never be repeated. It was something sacred and holy, and they all knew the soundtrack for the event. And so they all started singing Psalm 118. Now, I want to say that this psalm has many memorable lyrics, and it's a very lengthy psalm, but I want to make two basic points about this song. First, it is a song of salvation, and second, it is a song of slaughter. A song of salvation and a song of slaughter. Now, we know that it's a song of salvation because the crowds clearly favored that part of the psalm. These exuberant people in unison start chanting these important lyrics from Psalm 118. I'm going to read verse 9 um, from our uh, Matthew text, which quotes Psalm 118. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, so they're all surrounding him, were shouting, and then they quote verse 25 of Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I want to break down this quotation a little bit. This quotation from Psalm 118. They use the word for Jesus, Hosanna. They say it twice. In Hebrew, it simply means save us or pray or please save us. It's a plea. Somebody is crying out to heaven uh, for salvation. Now, in, uh, in verse 25, this word for salvation can be variously translated as just directly salvation or prosperity, but it's this hope, it's this cry, it's this, uh, this thing that arises from, from the human heart that begs for a heavenly intervention. By the way, we are a religion of heavenly intervention. We are not principally a religion of tips and tactics for you to get your life right. We have a little of that, but the biggest element of Christianity is what God is, has done for you outside of your own experience, but breaking into your own experience through a historical act. We believe, just as the Jews before us believed, that there would be an, a, a day of the Lord in which God would intervene in the midst of this cycle of decay and despondency, that there would be a breakthrough, a grand, historic, unmistakable, universally significant breakthrough. And so... Hosanna, God save us. But it's more than that. They say not just Hosanna, but Hosanna to the son of David. That is, this intervention that has been planned from memorial past, this intervention occurs through a singular individual and somebody with royal blood that is the descendant of the great king of Israel, sort of the archetypical, archetypal king of Israel, that is David. Um, that he would be a relative of David, a descendant of David. And it is no surprise that Matthew's gospel begins with these words, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right from the start of Matthew's gospel, we get the identity of who this man is, that he is a man of royal blood and kingly significance that derives his authority and his position from his great-great-great-grandfather, King David. And so they see this act of salvation, this Hosanna moment as being ushered in through the son of David. And then they continue with the psalm by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning this king will be motivated not just by his own interests, not by his own political persuasion, but instead he will be representing heaven. He will be the one who comes to usher something in from heaven. He comes in the name of the Lord, not just his own name, but the name of the Lord. 
Now, I want you to think about this crowd that day. They were all gathered around uh, this, this Christ figure who was riding into the city in great triumph. Uh, and they had said this psalm many, many times in their own lives. But now it felt like this psalm was no longer just aspirational. Maybe someday, maybe our great-great-grandchildren will see something good. No, it's we're seeing something good. Right now, we've waited for hundreds and hundreds of years We've agonized, we've disbelieved, then we rebelieved, but now finally it's happening. He's here and everything's going to be okay because the king is here. And so they sing to the heir of David. They sing this love song to him that they all had in their hearts and minds before this moment it became actualized in front of their eyes. Now, not Jesus not only loved their song and accepted their song, this kingly royal anthem, he instigated this song. He instigated it. He absolutely triggered this event. Uh, And we know this. We know he instigated this song because of his choice of a vehicle. Yes, the donkey. The donkey, a very loaded signal um, in Israelite theology. By the way, isn't it weird that the bulk of our New Testament Palm Sunday reading is dedicated to a donkey? There are more details about arranging a donkey with Jedi mind tricks. You know, the Lord has need of it. Um, um, uh, it's, there's just a lot in here about donkeys. Um, but there's a reason, and there's a very deliberate reason that Jesus was using this animal to ride into Jerusalem. And here are, um, here are two of the reasons, um, both from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 1, which was read today, um, we read about the original son of David. Because the original son of David wasn't so much Jesus, but his biological son, Solomon. Now, when Solomon was going to be coronated, that is, anointed as a Christ, right, anointed one. When he was anointed as king over Israel, he he had a particular mode of transport to get to his coronation. And it was very deliberate. He was to ride on a mule. He was to ride on a mule. Why? Why not uh, a charger? Why not a, um, a steed? Because a mule was a a visible symbol and reminder of being part of the servant class. Meaning he was not going to ride into town, Solomon was not, on a glorious um, vehicle. Instead, he was going to enter in humbly and deliberately to show his humility before God and before his subjects. Now, years and years later, the prophet Zechariah was so enthralled by that image and so touched by it that he also came to believe that the future Messiah, that is Solomon and David's great-great-great-great-grandson, would also enter into the city in the same way. And so Zechariah, who was quoted in our text from St. Matthew's Gospel, writes, Say to the daughter of Zion, remember Zion is Jerusalem, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, I just want to simply note that as Jesus enters Jerusalem as the royal king, as the descendant of Solomon, as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, and, uh, and as he uh, enters the city surrounded by songs of praise, songs of salvation that God has finally showed up to do what he's always promised to do, to set the world right, as he does this, Jesus is not sneaky. He's not sneaky. Now, In many instances in the life of Christ up to this point, Jesus is very sneaky. Because when he does many miracles, 
casts out many demons. He has a big thankful audience or thankful people that have been delivered or healed. And he, he very frequently tells them, don't say anything to anyone, right? Because he's not ready for the public press because you know how public press is. It gets weird and wild really fast, yes? Well, Jesus doesn't want that kind of press too early, but now he is the one who instigates the press. He rides into town on this symbol of messianic identity and kingly authority and accepts the praises of people calling him publicly the son of David. By the way, that's a very dangerous thing to say to somebody in the midst of Caesar's world. The world already had a king. Frankly, Israel already had two, in a sense. They had Pontius Pilate nearby, sort of a pseudo-king, and then Herod the Great, a pseudo-pseudo-king. Or Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. He was quite dead. Um, but, um, but Jesus is being very blatant here, very direct, sending a very clear message right now um, that I, in fact, am your king, and your salvation songs are entirely right. Jesus was quite, quite direct here in owning the song of salvation. And in Luke's gospel, when the Pharisees tell Jesus, you need to shut your followers up because they're behaving like crazy people, Jesus says to them, if they were silent regarding their songs of praise, even the rocks would cry out. Yeah. So that's something about the song of salvation. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet this song, this Famous psalm from Israelite history has dark themes in it. Yes, it has themes of victory, reprieve, and liberation, but there are also dark notes. You know, we don't know if the crowd sang these particular lyrics on Palm Sunday, but we did today, uh, and they are very central to the meaning of Psalm 118. And there are two dark, discordant notes that I want to mention. The first is from verse 22 in Psalm 118. The same stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. It's the most frequently cited portion of a psalm mentioned in the New Testament. That particular passage, the same stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? Something to the effect of the engineers behind Israel's religious apparatus the designers of this thing, the people that kept watch over the temple, that made sure the liturgy was done well, that arranged the worship of God and the sacrifices uh, within the system. Those very people that you would anticipate would love and welcome the messianic breakthrough are the same ones who hate it, who don't want it, and who say no, an infinite no to it. They say absolutely not. Right? And this was Jesus' own experience in the temple precincts. Again and again, he would be berated by, accused by, and denied by Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, uh, those who ran the liturgy, the, the, the high priests, the, the, uh, uh, the functional attorneys of Judaism that would charge people with crimes within the temple. He was assaulted by those same people. But the psalm says that that very one who is rejected by the builders becomes the cornerstone that is the most important stone in the whole building that all other stones are weighted against. If it, was, if it were to give way, everything else would crumble. It becomes the very thing upon which a new temple is built. So that's a discordant note that in the midst of all this celebration, we have to realize the, the, the son of David who is coming into the world is the one who is assaulted and dealt with harshly by the very people who ought to have accepted him. 
And then another discordant note in verse 27. This is really how the psalm culminates at the end. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. It's a strange ending. The psalm culminates in death, in a tying down of a sacrificial animal in its original context. It's important for us to remember, friends, that Jesus' triumphal entry happened on Passover, which was a lengthy festival that culminated with a special sacrifice, the Passover lamb being offered uh, as a blood substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And this is why Psalm 118 was frequently sung during Passover, especially as lambs were being killed for the people's sins. The day of the Lord, in other words, was a day of blood. The day of the Lord required a death. The day of the Lord all led to, and all the momentum led to, the public catastrophe of blood being shed so that people's sins could be forgiven. And so Psalm 118 is a psalm of salvation, but that salvation is linked to slaughter. Whether we like it or not, find it cheery or not, find it palatable or not, it is in the text. And Jesus understood slaughter, not the slaughter of his enemies, but his own slaughter, to be the off-putting centerpiece of his very life. He was labeled an animal from the beginning of his ministry. You remember what John the Baptist said on the seashore? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right from the start, that was his identity. He was going to be that human lamb to give his life away. His coronation would involve a crown, but it would be briars like the ones that grew during the fall narrative of Genesis 3. Now his skull wrapped in sin, and his throne would be a cross. You see, what we learn from the ongoing events of Holy Week is that the crowd did in fact want a king, but they didn't exactly like the way that Jesus defined kingship. They didn't like the kind of salvation that Jesus was offering. And when given the choice between Jesus's brand of religion or an insurrectionist brand of religion, which involved revolt, uh, that was made manifest in the man called Barabbas at Jesus's trial, the crowd voted in a particular direction that we now find off-putting. They wanted Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one who would throw off the shackles of Rome, and not Jesus. Uh, the crowd didn't want that kind of king. And said the Jerusalem crowds wanted a winner, somebody who would offer immediate prosperity without any pain, a salvation song without a dash of slaughter. Uh, Huxley, in his uh, novel, Brave New World, wrote about a drug called Soma. Soma was uh, a medication that prevented one from experiencing emotional pain. And the dictator character in Brave New World said of the drug Soma, Soma is a wonderful drug. It is Christianity without the tears. And that's very much the, the desire of the fallen human heart is for a religion to take away any of my problems except my core problem. Change my context. Get rid of ne negative political or cultural effects. But don't deal too squarely with me. Not too closely with me. Okay? But friends, Palm Sunday is the clearest possible evidence, buttressed of course by the rest of the events of Holy Week, that Jesus was not a king of coercion eager to conquer the world through the use of raw power. 
Raw power, friends, is never strong enough to cure our true malady. Raw power can temporarily shift political landscapes or cultural interests. But here's the problem. You get rid of the political landscape that you happen not to like today, or the cultural elements that you find displeasing, you want to do that through power, you'll just replace them with something else, and something that's likely much worse. Uh, this is just what happens time and time again in history. We throw off one set of shackles and simply adopt another set of shackles. Um, but Jesus aims at the root of our deforming crisis, which is not just culture or our politics. Jesus goes right to the root, which is what we discover in the mirror. That is the self, the fallen self that hates God and the fallen self that is so self-saturated it doesn't even know it's self-saturated. That's what Jesus is after, the sinful condition that lies at the heart of bad politics, bad religion, bad culture. It starts with bad us, bad Ethan, bad you. Like, that's what Jesus Christ is after. That is the area in which his kingship um, seeks to flourish first. In his first coming, King Jesus had no plans to topple Rome. St. Paul does not talk about toppling Rome. That is not part of the program. He came, in fact, in his first coming to topple sin inside Jews and Gentiles, all of us alike. Put another way, the crown rights of King Jesus do not lead to the White House, but to the cross. That's where he took his authority. That's where he went with it. But the crowd wanted something different. They wanted immediate wins. They wanted victory with flair. They wanted something so obvious and so immediate that their context would be made more pleasant and Let's not bash them. Can't we totally identify with these people, with this crowd? When they wanted a winner, Jesus, but then later in the week, he didn't seem like such a winner, so they turned on him. I mean, we want a winner, Jesus, because we think the winner, Jesus, will make us win too. And there are many winner Christs out there that are presented. Um, and some of them have an element of truth in them, but they all deliberately do one thing. They dodge the slaughter. They dodge the cross. All false Christs do. They promise something um, sweet and wonderful now while dodging your core problem. Kevin DeYoung, the Presbyterian uh, minister, put together this list, which I am now going to shamelessly copy. Um, and here goes. Many people want, for example, a therapist Christ. He is a Christ who helps us to cope with our negative emotions, teaches us about our inner worth, and encourages us to live our own authentic lives. Other people want a touchdown Jesus. Uh, not just at Notre Dame, all over the world. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christian athletes. And then there's platitude Jesus. He loves Christmas specials and clever bumper stickers and Thomas Kincaid paintings. And he lifts me up so I can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Christ. The revolutionary Christ overthrows oppressive systems. He casts off the shackles of John Locke in order to canonize Karl Marx. And if you don't like that, just reverse it. Um, there's Guru Christ. Guru Christ. He's sort of Buddhist, wise, inspirational, helps us to discover inner peace, and teaches that God is always found within our own experience. There's Macho Christ. He's got no time for pansies. He knows how to own the libs. He loves guns, missiles, and war. Just like the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's Life Coach Christ. Life Coach Christ. He'll help you to become your best self. He teaches practical skills so that we can all make better life decisions together. 
Then there's prosperity Christ. He doles out fulfillment and happiness and money. He exists to help your dreams come true. Then there's businessman Christ. If you follow his business principles, he'll help you close a sale, become a better leader, manage time, and influence others. And then there's culture warrior Christ. He's a Jesus who encourages his disciples to slowly but aggressively take over positions of power in order to coerce and force citizens to adopt Christian behavior, whether or not any of those citizens are actually converted. That doesn't matter so much. This Christ is a fan of atheist Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of will to power, just gussied up a little differently. Now, friends, here's the good news of the gospel. I'm going to give it to you straight right now. None of these Christs that I had just mentioned, none of them existed. Not one of them. They're not real. They are, to quote our Buddhist friends, maya. They are an illusion. Alas, we often prefer them because we think that these Christs will give us a little power, a little glory here and now. They will give us Christianity without the tears. But friends, if I ever proclaim any of the Christs that I've just mentioned as definitive, you have every right to petition the vestry to fire me on the spot, and I am not kidding. I'm not interested in proclaiming any of that nonsense to you. Instead, here is the Christ of the New Testament, a la St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When I came to Corinth, I desired to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. For we preach Christ crucified, dead, buried, and raised, an atoning sacrifice for sin, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Friends, this is the only Christ, the real Christ, and there is no other. So uh, let me wrap this up with two invitations. The first invitation, stop singing. Stop singing. That is, stop adoring false Christs with worship and bad concepts about Christ that would distract us from our king's central mission that is sponging away your sin with his blood. And we should also repent for dumb expectation, dumb expectations regarding following um, these false kings, like believing that being a disciple of Jesus is directly connected to earthly success in various areas of life, whether it's living our authentic lives, winning the culture wars, dominating in politics, or succeeding in business, or being relationally smooth and well-connected, or earning the evaporating approval of the world. I encourage you to gleefully turn away from these often ego-driven quests and learn, just as the Apostle Paul did, when I am weak is when I am strong. God's grace is made perfect in weakness. True Christian discipleship, modeled after the Palm Sunday and Holy Week Christ, means that God's chiefest work in our lives is evidence when we are brought to a place of humility, sober self-assessment, and reliance upon his lavish mercy alone. That is what discipleship looks like. That is what it lives into. Um, friends, don't sing anything for any Christs who don't forgive you and humble you. That's the mark of Christ's work in your life, to forgive you and humble you, to make you a different kind of person, so that your effect in the world would be one that is in line with Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, that strength would be found, but it's strength in God, and strength through first admitting weakness. So stop singing to false Christ. Second invitation, sing. That is, sing to the real one. Sing the true song of the Messiah. Sing of salvation that has been brought about by the means of slaughter. Sing of the Christ who was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Sing to the one of whom we could say, bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. That is, the Christ spiked into the altar of the cross. Friends, that is the real Christ, and there is no other. He has done it all. 
So spend your life singing out. Amen.